Good evening. Just want to remind you, whoa, that even scared me. (laughs) Just want to remind you that uh, this coming Sunday evening at 6 o'clock, oh, still sounds weird. Just want to remind you that at 6 o'clock on Sunday evening, uh, will be our Christmas uh, uh, program featuring our children's choir as well as our adult choir. And uh, we encourage you to come and join us as well as bring uh, family and uh, friends uh, with you, uh, especially those who may not know the Lord. And uh, we look forward to a, uh, a wonderful time. The, Choirs have been practicing long and hard, and I think that it's going to be a a real blessing to you, but especially to those who need to hear the gospel story. And so, uh, all beginning with the birth of Jesus. So, we look forward to to having you all come. All right. Uh, A couple of things. They should have been mentioned at the beginning of the month, but uh, we... We just seem to have forgotten that uh, uh, Christmas Day and New Year's Day both fall on a Wednesday. So on Christmas Day and New Year's Day, there will be no church services. So we're going to suspend services on Christmas Day and on New Year's Day. Now, remember that Christmas Eve, which is Tuesday, the 24th, uh, we're going to be having uh, one service, and I don't remember the time. I think it's at 5.30. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, 5.30. And we're going to have one. We, we were doing two. It was, you know, one's early, one's probably a little later. 5.30, right in between, so... Uh, make sure that you check that in the bulletins this week and the announcements that we're going to be giving. So that's going to be our service for that for the mid, the, the midweek will be Christmas Eve. No service on Christmas on New Year's Eve or on New Year's Day. And then on the 8th of January we get back on Wednesday night. Okay. Now that means next Wednesday. What's today? 11. So next Wednesday is the 18th. We're meeting next week. Don't forget that. How many are coming next week? The church on Wednesday, good, because I'm, I'm still in Book of Revelation, so we're, we're not leaving that, but taking a little break on Christmas Day and New Year's Day. I'll keep reminding you, okay? All right, but that's, that's the major announcement for this evening. All right, let's turn to Revelation chapter 14, please. Revelation 14. I tell you, I am so glad that we're in 14 because I got tired of talking about the Antichrist and Satan and the false prophet and all of that. And we spent a lot of time there, you know, five weeks, but it was important to do that. It's important for us to understand what the world has to look not so much forward to, but what they have to be warned about. 
These things are going to be happening. And, and the world right now is being primed by the mindset of <clears throat> the enemy, <clears throat> the mindset of secularism, humanism, or any other ism, including religious isms, except for true Christianity. So, we've kind of touched upon this as we've been going through the first 13 chapters of Revelation. But we come now to a time where our whole focus is now going to be out of the darkness and we're going to see light. And, and the reminder is, is of course, that <clears throat> even in darkness... Until the day of Jesus Christ, even in darkness, there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's always light. The promise of Messiah, the promise of Jesus, the promise that God has given us of a Savior, all of this is still to be presented to the world. We are still living in the day of grace. And praise the Lord for that. But there's coming a day when that's going to end. So, we who are believers in Jesus Christ have a responsibility. We have a calling. We have a... I don't want to say obligation, but it is a pressing call upon our hearts and our lives to tell people about Jesus Christ, to bring them to the knowledge of Jesus as Savior, as Lord, as Redeemer, as Master of all things. And, and so I hope that through these studies, both in Revelation and in the book of Genesis, as we've been going through that, those these, these series of studies are actually going to come to an end in 2014 honestly but I hope they continue on in our hearts and minds in the active part in the act of our faith as we were talking about this past Sunday acting on faith and in faith to win for Jesus Christ and to bring people to that victory that can only come in Jesus. So, Revelation 14. Verses 1 through 5 is our, uh, is, is our reading. We're going to really just focus our attention on verses 1 through 3 tonight. Uh, because 4 and 5, uh, there, there's a lot of things to cover in those two verses. But we'll also press on after that as well. But tonight we want to start with verses 1 through 3. We'll read verses 1 through 5. Then I looked... This is John the Apostle speaking. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. 
They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. When one reads through the whole of this chapter, chapter 14, it stands out in bold contrast to the previous chapter, chapter 13, in which we saw the Antichrist actually ruling the earth. Now when I say, say it in the past tense, of course this is how John presents it. We know it's yet future. But he sees it as, as, as something that has come to pass. Well, it's going to come to pass because God's word is always true. And especially the prophetic issues that we read about and that we see in Scripture, all those are going to come to pass. And we know they're going to come to pass because all of the Scriptures that we have read concerning the coming of Jesus the first time, all the Scriptures that pointed to Christ's coming have all been fulfilled. They were all fulfilled, every one of them. There wasn't one, script, one prophecy that wasn't fulfilled. There have been many other prophecies that have been fulfilled. Very clear that the Word of God is reliable. So if we can believe that about Israel, about Jesus, uh, and, and, and even the, the, the modern state of Israel that we see in prophecy, that was prophesied, just read, if you will, Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, and the bones rose up and, and, and it became, uh, became a nation. It, it was, in fact, really pointing to the rise of Israel after the Holocaust. And of course, in 1948, the, the, the state of Israel uh, was, was, was sanctioned by the UN. That, that doesn't matter to us, you know, what the UN says, but what matters is what God says. God, brought, God said it was going to happen, so it did. So with that in mind, see, we, we, we talk about Antichrist ruling, and this is what we saw in chapter 13, and that's why we spent so much time there. But there was terrible despair and gloom described for all those on the earth under the rule of the unholy satanic trinity. Satan... The Antichrist, or the beast, and the false prophet. All of those three are mentioned in chapter 13. The false prophet who appears like a lamb but speaks as a dragon, that's what we saw in verse 11 of the previous chapter, will have such power to cause all to receive the mark, that mark that we talked about last week. The etching, the engraving, the badge, as it were, the badge of servitude. And he causes even to kill those who do not worship the image of the beast. Symbolically thrusting his sickle into the earth and its people. It's a sad thing, but that's the reality that's going to happen, that all who have rejected Christ, especially all those on the earth who take the mark, because once you take the mark, that's it. 
The enemy will take a sickle, which is that curved blade uh, instrument that is used to, you know, to, to chop down the, the harvest and, and then to gather it. So the enemy thrusts a sickle into the earth and its people. But here in chapter 14, the Lamb of God, in contrast to that last image, is seen reaping the earth with his own sickle. We're going to see that, by the way, in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 14. So just keep that in mind when we get there. And so just as the darkest night will reveal the brightest stars, so the darkest period in the world's history will have its light shining on the horizon. The darkest, or the darkness, I should say, in chapter 13 is dismissed by the uplifting scenes of a glorious sunrise which now appears. The sunrise, which is the rise again of the Lamb of God that we see here at the beginning of this chapter. Let me add one more thing about this new chapter. There, there are a series of several separate visions, each complete in itself. And we're going to deal with each of those visions as we go through this chapter. However, they are disconnected pictures and aren't intended to present, they are not intended to present a chronological sequence of events. Now, this is something that we've already experienced in our study of the book of Revelation. That from time to time, the Holy Spirit gives us a panoramic view. Panoramic view of things to come. And then... He fills in the details later. We've already seen that. For example, the events of chapters 15 and 16. We have yet to get there, but the events of chapters 15 and 16 chronologically occur before the reaping and the harvesting visions in chapter 14. Verse 8, for instance, gives a brief announcement of the judgment of Babylon... But the actual judgment is in chapter 16. Do you all understand that? So we're not dealing here chronologically. We're not dealing here chronologically in this chapter. I'm sorry I get distracted when I see people stand there and they don't come in. So uh, let me try to regain my focus here. So... Verse 8 of this chapter that we're in is, is announcing the judgment of Babylon, but the actual judgment is later. So, so let's say that Revelation 14 then is like a table of contents. How many of you, of you read books? Nobody read books anymore? Come on now. How many of you read books? Maybe I should ask a question. Have you ever read a book? Has anybody? How many of you went to school? How many of you didn't go to school? Boy, this is a revealing night. Nobody wants to raise their hand. Nobody wants to admit to anything. What a sad society we live in. Nobody wants to admit to anything here. You know, at the beginning of a book, there's something called the table of contents. Kind of gives you the whole picture of everything that we see in the book. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Really? Yeah, you ought to check it out. You know, read a book. Here's a good book. It's called the Bible, and it's got a table of contents, too. It tells you all the books in the Bible. Okay. Anyway, so there, there it is. This, four, this chapter 14 is a, is a table of contents. Taking readers back to the beginning of the tribulation week and carries them forward to the end of the week. Containing visions 
of anticipation for the comfort of the saints. And instead of wicked beasts, the Lamb comes into view. Instead of multitudes forced to worship the Antichrist, there is the appearance of a host of redeemed praising and following Jesus Christ. So we see here in verse 1, look. Then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. Have we seen that number before? I'm not going to beat you all if you don't answer me. Just answer me. Have you seen this number before? Okay, good. I love you guys, but I'm going to be, I'm going to do, I don't know. Okay. I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, we have a tremendous contrast here to the dictatorial and hateful characters from the previous chapter. Jesus as the Lamb of God representing true, gentle humility with powerful servant leadership and symbolizing sacrifice which to the Jewish people receiving this prophecy would immediately consider the temple and the quiet, compliant and submissive animals killed there to cover as it were their sin. That would be a picture that they would see if they're told this is the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. What a difference from all other religions in the world that place the emphasis upon the things that we would have to do to find redemption or to have salvation. But it is our God Himself who takes the load for us, who took the punishment for us. And in sacrificing His only begotten Son, these animals pre-Christ were symbolic of the covering of sins, their, their blood shed, the animals to, to atone for the sins of Israel. So here is the Lamb of God who sheds His blood for us. And before the Lord sent the tenth and final plague, if you remember back in Exodus chapter 12 when God sends Moses to Pharaoh and tells him to let my people go, And Pharaoh says, no way, Jose, or Moses, or whatever his name is. He says, listen, he would come with one plague after another, after another, after another. And when it was time for the tenth and final plague, before the Lord sent that plague on the nation of Egypt, so that Pharaoh would release God's people from captivity... He instructed every household in the camp of the Israelites in what to do to escape death. That is, God, through Moses, tells the people what they need to do. Exodus 12, verses 5-7 through says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep 
or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. He's saying, you put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. And then there's a basin at the bottom and you see the picture of the cross. So it is significant that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From Genesis 3 to Revelation, that has been the picture. In Genesis 3, when man sinned and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God covered them with, with skins. But what does that imply? It implies to get the skin from the animal, you had to kill the animal, which means there was blood to be shed. And this is always to remind us the, the cost of sin and why we need to avoid it. Why sin is abhorrent to God. Getting back to our text, with Jesus we see the 144,000 that were last seen in, in chapter 7, where they were identified as a group of Jewish believers from every tribe of the children of Israel, sealed by God. Now listen carefully to this. Sealed by God for protection for the period in which they would serve the Lord. We know that at the sounding of the fifth trumpet in Revelation chapter 9, there would be those who will be harmed by the locusts that come from the bottomless pit because they don't have the seal of God. That's what we're told in Revelation 9 verse 4. They, speaking of the locusts, were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Well, who had the seal of God on their foreheads? For sure. For sure, the ones who had it were the 144,000, because that's what we're told back in chapter 7. Now, because they were given this seal of protection, the 144,000 are now standing, or they're seen standing, with the Lamb of God on Mount Zion. But here's the question. Which Mount Zion? Which Mount Zion are they standing on? Is it the heavenly Mount Zion? <clears throat> well, let's, let's consider the heavenly Mount Zion for just a moment. Because it tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and, uh, through 24, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. So do you have a picture now that we're talking about? Heaven, or the heavenly uh, Jerusalem, heavenly Mount Zion, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to 
to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So that, that tells us a little bit about this heavenly uh, Mount Zion. Or, now, here's the alternative. Or, is it speaking there in Revelation 14 to the earthly, or is it referring to the earthly Mount Zion? Now, this is a critical question. It is a critical question because of the implications to the 144,000 as to whether the beast of chapter 13, as to whether the beast could be completely victorious over God's sealed people, or are God's sealed people triumphant at the end of the tribulation period? It's a very important question to ask. If this passage is referring to the heavenly Mount Zion, then the thinking could be that the 144,000 are victims of the beast. Are, Are you with me so far? We know there's a group of people called the tribulation saints that die during the seven year period. They will die during the seven year period because they finally realize, they come to the truth of the knowledge that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So they receive the Messiah at the risk of, you know, of losing their lives for trusting in Christ. And we have already seen in the book of Revelation that these tribulation saints are found in heaven under the altar where they're crying out for vengeance. We all remember that, right? So <clears throat> there, there is this, this thought then that if they're in heaven, they're there because they didn't make it in the seven-year period. And therefore, you know, yeah, they're, they're victorious that they're in heaven, but the beast overcame those who were sealed by God. So you get the picture of what we're dealing with. So, are the 144,000 victims of the beast triumphing only because they are now in heaven with Jesus, but this view doesn't appear to match the context of the passage at all. What good was God's seal then? What good was the seal of God? Now, please understand this. This is critical about the 144,000. For us, as believers in Jesus Christ, from the very beginning of the church, we were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We were sealed in our salvation for Jesus Christ. So that no matter what happens to us in our lifetime in this flesh of ours, whether we die a natural death and we go to heaven, or we die because we're serving the Lord and we're persecuted for our faith and we're martyred for our faith, we're still sealed in heaven. We all understand that. But the significance here is about these 144,000 who were sealed for protection. So, consider again the children of Israel at Passover in Exodus 12, which we just read a little while ago. And I want you to add to that the account of the three young Hebrew men who were the friends of Daniel, who were saved from the midst of the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel. 
And they were thrown into the fire because they did not worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't that a, an interesting similarity here? Thrown into the fire. And when they looked into the fire, what did they see? Four men dancing around. One like the Son of Man. Sounds like Jesus to me. The people that threw those three Hebrew young men into the fire, they died. They, they got too close to the fire. When the three Hebrew young men finally came out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they finally came out, they didn't even smell like smoke. We're told in the account in Daniel. That's pretty good protection to me. That's the best fire insurance anyone can have. God's protection. The earthly Zion, to get back to what we need to understand here, the earthly Zion, which is named for the hills that make up Jerusalem, is going to be the place where the Messiah gathers His redeemed and reigns over the earth. It is the place where the Messiah gathers His redeemed or will gather His redeemed and reign over the earth for a thousand years. First of all, begin with Psalm 48 verses 1 and 2. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in His holy mountain or in the mountain of His holiness. Uh, King James uh, has a little bit more of a musical flow to it. Uh, beautiful in elevation or beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. May I ask you, is Jerusalem today the joy of the whole earth? Not right now. Not right now. So we know that one day it will be. Because this is speaking of the earthly Mount Zion. And, and actually you can read all the way through the, the rest of the, of the psalm. But this is speaking of the earthly Mount Zion. It's not the joy of the whole earth yet, but it will be. And then you have to look at passages like Isaiah 24, verses 21 through 23. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones, and on the earth the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gather, gathered in the pit, and will be shut up in the prison. After many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. Reading within the context of that, this is speaking of Mount Zion on the earth. There is the statement made by Joel chapter uh, 2 verse uh, 32. It says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Now folks, there's, there's no need for deliverance in the heavenly Mount Zion. Right? 
No need for deliverance there. It's already been delivered. It doesn't need deliverance. It's the heavenly Mount Zion. But here it says, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Now, I want you to add to these passages. And there's many, many others. We won't have time tonight to go through every one of them. But add to these passages the clear statement that we read in Zechariah chapter 14. And I want you to look this up tonight, because I want you to see it. We've, we've actually studied this before and, and looked at it very clearly. It says that in, in Zechariah 14 of Jesus returning to Jerusalem and standing on the Mount of Olives. How many of you, who's, who's been to the Mount of Olives? Let me see your hands. Ah, oh, praise the Lord, that's neat. Okay. You see, you, you see that, and what, what do you see when you look out from the Mount of Olives? You see the eastern gate of the city, the old city of Jerusalem. So you are fa- you know, you're facing west, but you're coming from the east. When you go toward Jerusalem, when you walk down that long down road, the long road down, I was going to say, down road, no, it's don't road down. You walk down that road and you're kind of like, it's a long road down. And you walk across the street over there and you have to be careful of the buses you don't want to get run over by. But you go down that and then you, go, you cross over and, and you get into the city, the old city of Jerusalem. But you look at that eastern gate and it's all bricked in. And what you read in Zechariah 14 is what Jesus is going to do when he goes to enter in through that gate. The gate will, well, first of all, the valley that's in front is going to open up. And it's going to go north and south. And then Jesus is going to go and that gate, those stones are going to hold Jesus. And he's going to go through that gate. But here's, here's the thing. He's going to enter the city and he is going to establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. The heavenly Mount Zion or the earthly Mount Zion? Earthly Mount Zion. So next we see in our text that these 144,000 have the Lamb's Father's name. The Lamb's Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, we spent a considerable amount of time last week talking about the mark of the beast, the mark of the Antichrist, which we said was an etching, an engraving, uh, even a, a quite possibly a tattoo. But when looking at the, uh, at the pictures of, of the groups of, of, of Muslim uh, uh in, in, in groups like Hamas or, or Hezbollah or any of these other groups, when they gather together, they all wear these bands on their heads. And we saw that even in young children. But these bands on their head and on their right arm with the, the, with the blasphemous sayings that, that talk about, you know, that, that Allah is, is, is alone God and, and His prophet is Muhammad, which is really saying that Jesus is not the Messiah. But uh, there's other things said in all of that writing. That's the copy, folks. Not this. Just because you see it first, doesn't mean that this is is the, uh, uh, the copy. No. 
By the way, when were the 144,000 sealed? Back in chapter 7. I'll help you with that one. I already have, but you know, I was hoping you'd respond. You guys must be tired. Or maybe it's just a little too warm in here. And you're just kind of, hey, Charlie, it's so nice. So comfortable in here. <laughs> Remember this. Remember that the Father's name is written on their foreheads. It's their seal. Go back to chapter 13. Remember that the followers of Satan and the beast will have that mark on their hands or foreheads, but those marks are just the copies. The idea behind the identifying mark of the foreheads of each of the 144,000, which, will, which will indicate that they belong to the Father. So, now, the name of the Father, we've got to get to that. The name of the Father can also be the name of the Son as well. And you'll see that in just a moment. The name of the Father can be the name of the Son as well. How many proud fathers name their sons after themselves? It's all right. A lot of people do that, right? Firstborn usually takes the name of the father. A lot of times. I don't know what the percentage is, but most of the time. Eh, Not most of the time, but a lot of times. Y'all understand what I'm saying, right? Okay, so, the name of the father can also be the name of the son as well. But there's a family name, as it were. And what is the name that we're dealing with here? Very simply, it is the name, the great I am. The great I am. Now, we know it best as, I am that I am. I am that I am. That is King James. The New King James says, I am who I am. To shorten the name, it is, I am. He he is, has always been, will always be. It speaks of His eternality. It speaks of His greatness over all of His creation. It is, it is a name above all names. The great I Am. Now... Some have translated that name, the All-Becoming One. I, I, I struggle a little bit with that, even though there's, there's some validity to it. But He is and will always be, because He never changes. God's character will never change. God's attributes will never change. God is immutable. The Bible teaches that. uh, Immutability is, of course, unchangingness. Jesus himself, in uh, in Hebrews 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ the same, yesterday, today, and forever. When we speak of Jesus in the book of Revelation at times, it says that he was, he is, and is to come. Was and is and is to come. Applies to Jesus as well.
It was the name that was spoken to Moses at, at the burning bush. That's the name I am that I am. For example, Exodus 3.13, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and, and, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they, say, they shall say to me, What is his name? What, what, shall, what shall I say unto them? I was, I was, I was uh, uh, stuttering a little bit because Moses stuttered. And so, God said to him, I am that I am. That's my name. I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. I am. You see... He is not a God that can be created. The I am is not a God that can be created. The gods of the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, uh, all the way down through history, you know, all of the, the ancient civilizations that there have been, when we go back to Hebrew, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 11 and deal with a table of nations, all coming actually out of the sons of Noah. Uh, yeah, coming out of the sons of Noah, and they, you know, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and, 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 and they take, you know, the... Ah, They left God. They forgot God. And they started creating their own gods. So civilizations at the time of Moses and, and all those who are indicated to us in the, in, the, uh, in the earliest chapters of the book of Genesis and so on, and then in Exodus as well, all of them, when they talked of this God... They were dealing with a God that could not be seen with the eyes, but they were talking about a God who was always God, not created. And that God, of course, was more powerful than any other God, because all the other gods were what? They were just objects. They were made out of wood, and they were made out of stone, or whatever else. They would build these idols from. God does not like idols made of other things or other people. He says, I am God, I alone am God, and there is no other. So, it's, we have to come to that understanding here of the name. I am, there is no other, and you, I wasn't created. You know, a lot of times atheists go around saying, oh, you know, you guys created God. Uh-uh. He's already got a name. I am. Now, who would ever, who would ever give God a name like that? <laughs> no, we got, we got all kinds of names for our own gods. God is the only one that can say, hey, I am. I am God. I am that I am. Now, down through the ages, man has tried to translate this name based on the Hebrew letters Y-H-W-H. Capital Y, capital H, capital W, capital H. Y-H-W-H. 
Theologically, there's a name for that. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Tetra meaning four, four letters. So, that's the name of God. I am. We give names such as Jehovah. It's not accurate, but we want to give a name to God. Jehovah actually comes from the Latin construction of YHWH. Trying to be a little bit more Hebrew, we gave him the name Yahweh. That might be a little closer, but we really don't know how to pronounce the name YHWH. The Jews truly have this devotion to the name of God that they will not speak even the letters. And so many of them, because they consider the name too, too, too holy to speak or pronounce, so some of them use the term Hashem. Hashem. H-A-S-H-A-M. E-M. I'm sorry. H-A-S-H-E-M. Hashem. Hashem just... just simply means in Hebrew, the name. He is the name. Which, I, I see a lot in, in some things that I read out of, out of Israel and stuff. Hashem. A lot of uh, Messianic Jews use that name, Hashem. But the name of God is so significant to us. The name of God is so significant to us as believers... Because, let me ask you this question, who provides for us? God says, I am the one who provides for you. Who heals us? God says, I am the one who heals you. Who is the one who paid for our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness? I am. I think you're getting it. Who is the one who will never leave us nor forsake us? I am. Who is the one that is going to bring us home to heaven? I am. All of our needs, whatever they may be, are met in the great I am. No one else. Because there is no one else. There is no other name. There is no other person. No matter how much devotion we can give to saints or anybody else, or so-called saints, because you know what? The Bible says we're saints. We're supposed to be set apart unto Jesus Christ. That says, I, I alone am worthy. I want you to remember the words of Jesus when he was confronted by unbelieving Jews. And they were questioning him about Abraham. And the name of Abraham came up. And Jesus said something to them. It's incredible. He said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. What did Jesus just say? What did he say? I am God. 
Why do you think that the next verse, everybody's picking up rocks to stone him? Because they consider that blasphemy. Because here was a man in front of them. But a man who they should have known was the Messiah. Where were you born? Bethlehem. Just read Micah 5 verse 2. To whom were you born? I was born to a virgin. Her name's Mary. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, just read Isaiah 7:14. What are you all about? I'm God coming to you. Emmanuel. God with us. What's your real name? Oh, I should be called Wonderful. Counselor. Almighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. No man could say that. Except one. Because he had the name. Before Abraham was. I am. Getting back to 144,000 here. With a little time that we have left. I want you to notice there in in verse 1 that not only are the 144,000 standing, but they are also singing. Going into verses 2 and 3 now. They're singing, which is another indication of their triumph. It is another indication of their triumph. They were not defeated by the Antichrist. Notice what it says in verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice... Of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. Whose voice would that be? And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now, here's, here's where a lot of people go a little bit off on, on where these 144,000 are. Because who are singing? It's the people in heaven that are singing the song that only the 144,000 can learn. So the song is being sung, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So, so you see, you have to, you have to understand... Immediately you think, well, the 144,000 are before the throne. They're in the heavenly Mount Zion singing their song. No, no, they're, they're learning the song because they're hearing it come from heaven. They're hearing it come from heaven because of the voice of uh, like many waters and, 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 and so on and so forth. And, and then the song begins to take place because the 144,000 don't have harps. But we know who does. Oh, by the way, here's a wonderful thought. 
And I love this thought in this chapter. Heaven is not silent when it comes to God's people being victorious. Heaven is not silent when it comes to God's people being victorious. The voice heard from heaven is more than likely the voice of Jesus himself. And, and, and you know, I, when, you, when you talk about the, the, the harpists and all of that, I, I love the King James uh, in the next phrase when it says, And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. I love that. The voice of harpers harping with their harps. That's great. They should add that to the 12 days of Christmas. You know? 12 pipers piping, 11 drummers drumming, 10 lords leaping, and 9 harpers uh, harping. You know, that would be great if they did that. But, but here's the thing. It, 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 the harpers were harping with their harps. So it reminds us of who's playing the harps. Go back to Revelation 5 verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll back in heaven, notice, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp. Now we know who the harpers are harping with, by themselves over there. The harpers. Uh, they had a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. It is clear that they are not singing the song of the church here in chapter 14, because the song of the church... By the way, chapter 14 is the song of the 144,000 that only the 144,000 can learn. It is a song that others cannot share because of their special experiences that they will have during the tribulation period. But the song of the church, by the way, is the next two verses here in chapter 5. And it says, and they sang a new song with the harpers harping on their harps. They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Speaking directly to Jesus who was slain for them. The church, for us. It says, And and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us. Us! Where's the church at this point? In heaven. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. That's the song of the church. But what we see here in verse, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 14 of Revelation is the song of the 144,000. Voices. By the way, voices is, is a very important word that ties together the next few chapters. 14, 15, 16, primarily. All kinds of voices, harps, and singing. But this is indeed the lifting up of worship and praise to the great I Am. Because when it comes right down to it, our victories are only our victories because Christ was victorious for us. Our victories are only victories because of Jesus. So this should be the response of all of God's redeemed people throughout every generation, throughout every age. We are to worship the Lord always in response to who He is and what He has done and what He is doing in preparation for what He will do in these last days. We are to praise Him for all of this. Amen?
We just sang a little while ago this verse. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Psalm 150, verse 6. And it ends with one word. I know it says three words up there. But that one word is hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's Hebrew for praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let everything that has breath sing hallelujah. Let everything... Did y'all come in here with breath tonight? I, I noticed some of you ran in here out of breath. But praise the Lord that you could catch up with your breath. But you came in with breath because you have breath to give back praise to God for that breath you have. For everything that you have, we are to praise the Lord. The harp. The harp is mentioned about 40 times in the scriptures. And every time it is mentioned, bear with me here, I'm... I'm, I'm trapped in my own binding here. The harp is mentioned about 40 times in Scripture, and every time it is mentioned, it is associated with joy. Every time it is mentioned, it is associated with joy. In Isaiah, we are told that when sorrow replaces joy, the harp ceases. And those were days we could see in the lives of the captives the captives of Israel going to um, Assyria or going to Babylon. There's even Psalms that talk about their harps ceasing because they were so in sorrow, because they were in captivity, because of their sin. But because of what Christ has done for us and because of the cross of Jesus Christ and because of the blood of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of our sorrow, even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of our afflictions, whatever they may be, whatever they may be, it is the song of joy that sustains us. Even if you don't own a harp, it is the song of joy that sustains us for the joy of the Lord. As it says in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Let me ask you, what did Paul and Silas do while they were in stocks imprisoned in Philippi? They were, they were in stocks. I mean, it is thought that they were on their knees and their hands were bound up in this position. Um, imprisoned for the preaching of the gospel. What'd they do? Acts 16, verse 25 says, But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. It was a little tough to play the harp that night. So they were singing hymns to God. And the prisoners... We're listening to them. They were giving testimony of the power of the great I am. And they were praising the Lord with joy in spite of their 
circumstance. We know what happens then. Little earthquake took place. Released their bonds, opened the door. And the Philippian jailer that was in charge of them was very scared. Scared because if they had escaped, it would have been his head. Instead, they testified of Jesus to him. And not only was the Philippian jailer saved, but all of his household. Because of the joy of the Lord. in two prisoners who were just singing praise to God. It's an interesting thing that God's given us a harp. It's right here. It <clears throat> doesn't work exactly like, uh, you know, the plucking of a harp, but, 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 but the, the physics behind it all is that there's a vibration that goes on. It's like any instrument to make tones, to sing. There are some animals that sing very beautifully. And somehow I think that the Lord designed them that way to hear their praises. But he designed us not only to sing, but to speak words that should rise up as praise, as incense unto the Lord that the Lord is pleased with. So please don't ever not sing to the Lord because you're afraid that somebody might hear you and think that you're a terrible singer. Don't worry about that. In the ears of God, You outshine anybody that sings on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera House. Because it's not about our fame. It's about His glory. It's about Him. So if we have been redeemed by God, we have something worthwhile to sing about. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for the voice that you've given us so that we might praise you.